Steph from Heinemann, and today on the podcast, we have another conversation from our new Forward Ed Slow Conference series. Today's conversation features Robert Kim, Cornelius Minor, and Cass Minor. Bob Kim is a leading expert in education, law, and policy in the United States. He's a former civil rights attorney and author of the book, Elevating Equity and Justice, 10 U.S. Supreme Court Cases Every Teacher Should Know. Cornelius Minor is a Brooklyn-based educator. He works with teachers, school leaders, and leaders of community-based organizations to support equitable literacy reform. He is the author of We Got This, Equity, Access, and the Quest to Be Who Our Students Need Us to Be. Cass Minor is an inclusive educator who is deeply involved in local inquiry-based teacher research and school community development. She has contributed content to the Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy, Edutopia, Hyman Education Blog, InclusiveClassrooms.org, and more. Together, Bob Cornelius and Cass discuss the recent slew of so-called anti-CRT legislation and how educators can remain dedicated to students and equity amidst it all. This conversation is part of Heinemann's new video series, Forward Ed, Forward Together in Education. If you'd like to watch the full video of this and other conversations, you can find them on the Heinemann Publishing YouTube channel or Facebook page. Here now is Bob, Cornelius, and Cass. Hi, everyone. It's so great to be here uh, with uh, my illustrious uh, co-authors and presenters here, Cass Vider and, <laughs> and Cornelius Minor. Uh, I'm Bob Kim. I am a writer. Uh, I write about legal and education policy issues and uh, I had a career for about two decades as a, a civil rights attorney, primarily working on uh, discrimination and civil rights issues in public education and also working on federal education policy. And with that, I'd like to turn it over to Cass. Hey, everyone. Thanks, Bob. So I'm so excited to be in such great company today. Um, a fun fact, Bob, Cornelius, and I, well, of course, Cornelius and I live in Brooklyn, but Bob does too. So we're so excited to be doing this with a neighbor. Um, so my work is really based on uh, how children experience school and learning in classrooms. And so I have been a Brooklyn-based educator for my entire adult career. Um, so for almost 20 years now, and part of that work really uh, requires me to check out the communities that surround me, understand what's happening in the world around me and figure out what my next steps are um, based on what I know to be best learning practices. And so I'm excited to have almost always done that with my partner Cornelius here in some kind of way. Um, so I'll let him say a few things about himself too. Yes, and thank you, Cass and Bob. For those of you who are joining us, my name is Cornelius. I am a middle school literacy coach and educator I'm based in Brooklyn alongside Cass. And so it's a real joy to be here, literally alongside my favorite lawyer and my favorite educator. So this is really exciting. Awesome. And so today, everyone, we are going to talk about this this uh, rel relatively recent development around critical race theory. And uh, as many of you know, the in recent months and in the, over the past year, uh, these so-called anti-critical race theory laws have uh, really cropped up uh, in many states around the country. And uh, today we're going to examine uh, what the 
the current and the potential impact of these uh, so-called anti-CRT or critical race theory laws are on teaching and on professional development in K through 12 schools. So that's our topic today. And uh, we really look forward to kind of delving into this. Uh, Ed Cornelius, why don't you moderate our first little part of this conversation here? Well, you know, Bob, like I was so excited for this conversation just because I I think so much about this as you know, the work that Cass and I do in schools is work about creating rich, loving, powerful and affirming environments for children. Um, and so as this conversation has started, one of the things that teachers all over the country are wondering is what exactly is critical race theory and what's in these anti-CRT laws, you know, that that we don't even know where they came from. It's like they showed up all of a sudden. Um, talk about that a little bit, Bob. Yeah, I mean, let's let's try to do this, break this down in a nutshell here. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, from my understanding, I was, you know, I was a law student, I'll, I'll date myself here, but in the early and mid-90s, I was a law student and critical race theory was just becoming popularized in law schools around the country. It's primarily a legal thing. Um, it's an intellectual movement that really came of age in the 90s, uh, and it sprang up from the feminist legal theory and critical legal studies movements, which uh, all of which were trying to examine institutions of law and examine how power operates in our society and how it affects legal institutions. And so critical race theory was really grappling with uh, race and how that is constructed in the U.S. and how it operates and it affects our legal institutions. And uh, lots of law professors were primarily were writing about it in really interesting and novel ways using personal narratives and, and other forms of describing how race impacts the United States. So that's the that's what critical race theory is. But then, then like we have this, what's happening now, which actually doesn't really bear that much resemblance to that really heady, wonky CRT. Uh, this is uh, the the CRT developments. Uh, you know, for me, it was dormant outside of academia. It was like I never even heard of CRT as a practicing civil rights lawyer for the next fifteen years. But it came back up uh, about a year ago uh, when the Trump administration passed uh, a federal memo and then an executive order, which was talking about uh, being uh, critical of white privilege, uh, the concept of white privilege, and uh, trying to uh, stop training, certainly at the federal level, but then now moving on to schools, training around concepts of white privilege or any suggestions that the United States or any person in it is inherently racist or sexist um, and trying to stop, quote unquote, scapegoating of people based on their race or sex, you know, i.e. primarily, I think it's directed toward the scapegoating of people in positions of power. Uh, whether they're white people or whether they're men, right? So, uh, so it's it was really trying to, you know, it was a political year, so so this came up in a political context. But that was the the Trump executive order that passed, and it primarily affected federal contractors, not schools directly. Uh, so, long way of saying that 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 uh, executive order went into effect. It was eventually uh, so uh, kind of stopped by a federal court. And then Biden, uh, when President Biden was elected, uh, he rescinded that executive order. So that's no longer in effect. But what what came out of that is a proliferation of bills and proposals in 
many, many states around the country at the state level to kind of replicate that executive order. So now you have, um, you know, 20 uh, proposals in, in the majority of states that have these bills that are trying to stop the suggestion that anybody is inherently racist in our country um, or that anyone bears responsibility for the past actions of other members of their own race uh, or that um, anyone should experience uh, so-called, quote, discomfort or anguish, unquote, uh, uh, based on their own race or, or their own sex. So, so that's really the what's happening now in over half of the states and uh, a handful of states, about uh, nine or 10 or so, have now passed laws that in fact codify these kinds of provisions. So that's a nutshell of like where we are now with CRT. Um, and I'll just stop by saying and pass it over to Cass that, you know, we'll talk about this more, but the laws do exist in several states, but you can still teach about race and sex and racism and sexism in public schools, you can still train about anti-racism and anti-sexism and diversity training in public schools. And so we want to distinguish between what these laws say and what's on the books versus what people still can do. And I hope we'll take away from this, this uh, presentation that you still can teach about race and sex uh, and civil rights and social justice in public schools. Uh, and with that, I'll turn over to Cass to sort of <laughs> fill in everything that I might have forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> so firstly, thank you so much for that really clear definition of exactly what is CRT and where does it come from? You know, just like you, Bob, it has been a really long time since I have delved into, you know, reading specifically about critical race theory as coined by researchers and whatnot. And it's interesting because as an educator, somebody who works in lots of different schools, I now um, am reading laws like I have never read laws before. Uh, so uh, for folks who are listening, Adweek has a really incredible resource. It has a map and you can hover around the different states and you can look at what kinds of laws are, are being proposed or what laws have been enacted. And Bob, the thing that I, I want to ask you about, right, is I'm reading some of these laws and, you know, A, I am thoroughly confused now by my own understanding of CRT versus what the laws are proposed litigation is saying educators can and cannot do. Um, so I'm wondering, I just, I want to read a little section of uh, the law in Texas, SB3, that's been posed. And maybe you could just help us understand, like, what do we do with this? Because as an educator, I'm like, a little worried, like, can I act as I normally have? Or do I need to be like rethinking how I present myself or information in this community? So in Texas, there is a piece that says something like media literacy, including instruction on verifying information and sources, identifying and responding to logical fallacies and identifying propaganda as appropriate for the grade level and consistent with the restrictions under section 28.0022. So I'm a, a little bit like, whoa, after I read that, I was like, oh, I can, I'm teaching like logical fallacies and I'm digging into propaganda, right? But then there's like this piece that's talking about restrictions and I'm like, oh, <laughs> what restrictions? How do I need to move? So a lot of educators I'm sure are feeling the same way I am. Can you tell us like, how do we navigate all of this? It's so confusing. 
Yeah, welcome to the frustrating and maddening world of, of legal statutory interpretation, right? <laughs> so once you get into the subsection A dot I dot one, you know, uh, and, and being bopped around to different portions of these laws, it, it gets a little crazy even for lawyers. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because all of these laws, I have, I've studied many of them, as, as have you, Cass, they purport to prohibit a whole bunch of things related to race or sex. But then when you read them, it's actually, um, there's a lot of exceptions to that and loopholes. And also there's a lot of parts of these laws that say you actually should teach about historical concepts around race, the civil rights movement um, in that same bill that you were just reading from, Cass. It starts out with a litany of things that social studies educators and professional development trainers in Texas should and even must teach about. I mean, you name it, related to all kinds of issues around slavery and the history of slavery and race in the United States. Um, You know, the Fugitive Slave Act, Martin Luther King, letters from a Birmingham jail, um, uh, many, many uh, specific concepts around race and sex. So it's, it's sort of like they speak out of both sides of their mouths, where it's like, uh, something's prohibited, but then when you read behind, between the lines, there's actually not much, if at all, that 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 educators can't do or say around race. For example, just to isolate race issues for a minute. So um, you know, and and really, the laws uh, in in many states they say uh, whatever your academic standards say as an educator, you know, for core social jud- studies content, language arts content stick to that. You know, you're still held to what you should cover in terms of uh, what your state standards require. And so you really get a sense after reading these bills that um, that teachers really still have an obligation to grapple with their students around issues around race and sex. And there's really just some themes, uh, some some feelings that certain legislators just didn't feel good about, like messages around people children, for example, being made to feel like they're inherently racist because they're white, for example. And uh, I don't know of any teachers or professional development traders, I'll pass it over to you two, that that go around like sort of making everyone in the room feel like uh, they're inherently uh, racist, you know, as as a feeling that you should walk away from this training for. Now, that's different from talking about structural racism and, and privilege, which does get into those concepts of, you know, how do you unpack that and, and, and make educators and kids understand that. But that's different from some of these narrow provisions in these laws that are saying, you know, nobody should be made to feel that they're inherently less than or unequal. And of course, that's we're doing trying to do the opposite as as educators and traders. We're trying to instill concepts of equity, right, and and equality and equity, and that that everyone deserves to uh, be on equal footing in schools. Uh, so so that's a quick reaction, Cass, to to sort of the the language that you were that you were mentioning. Yeah, thank you so much, Bob. So you know, Cornelius and I want to talk and expand a little bit about what we are noticing and witnessing the communities that we work in. You know, it's interesting when we think about you know all of these lawmakers and politicians who fear, um, who are fearing specifically for for white children to develop this sort of like guilt um, from being taught about you know 
real history. And the thing that I have to say about that is like, it really depends on, you know, your positionality and your identity and where you're coming from in terms of what you're noticing about how people are perceiving this information. Um, You know, Cornelius and I often work together in schools and, you know, I am a white woman, he is a black man, and we notice things uh, from very different positions and we'll surface like different information based on who we are. And that's a conversation that this country, you know, for a long time, for about 30 years, a lot of folks, I remember I went to school in the 80s and early 90s. I was taught like colorblind was like the way to go, right? So for a great while in this country, many of us, including myself, were taught to, you know, everybody's the same inside. Like, you know, don't judge somebody by the color of their skin, but also like erase uh, all of the culture that they're bringing to the table. And so part of what we, what I see happening from my vantage point is that you have a lot of folks in this country who have never really had to consider white racial identity development. And now schools are taking what schools and the people within them are taking what we know um, to be like what children need to learn in the best kinds of ways to have the best learning experiences, which is to see their whole selves and to have their identities affirmed and their culture represented within school communities and their culture represented in how we choose instructional methodologies. All of those things are, it's, it's great. Like we're considering all of those things now. For me, I I interpret the threat in terms of all of the proliferation of CRT laws being in response to things feel really differently in a school community now because people are moving to shift the culture to be far more inclusive and far more responsive to all of the children that are attending school. We're not sort of like teaching to this like, uh, you know, one size fits all model, which is beautiful and which is what we know is best for children. Um, But I know like as I'm partnering with Cornelius, like he has completely different noticings and experiences by way of his identity and his positionality. What, what you are experiencing since these laws have been been mm-hmm. coming to the fore, what have you noticed as a trainer, a professional development expert, uh, uh, and as educators? Uh, well, the, the powerful thing, Bob, is that there's no, it's not an accident that all of these things are happening now. You know, when we consider the last 18 months that we've had from pandemic to protests to insurrection, right, that that there's a real grappling in this historical moment with what the future can look like. You know, um, I, I always go back to Aaron Dirty Roy's essay, The Pandemic is a Portal, right? And this idea that this pandemic put our American culture in a situation where we get to decide what's next. And there were a lot of folks who came together around the, the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd who said, what's next must be just for all people. What's next must see every human, right? What's next must guarantee access for everyone, right? And, and as people started pushing toward that, there are people in power who started pushing back. And so this anti-CRT movement is really, like you said earlier, an effort by people in power to sidestep conversations about and responsibility for the historical wrongs that gave them all their power, right? Because now you've got teachers who are asking questions. Let's actually talk about redlining in Chicago. Let's actually talk about gerrymandering in Georgia. And when we teach kids about those things, kids start to look around and they start to ask questions. Well, the way things are is because of these things that have secured power for a few and denied power to many, right? Um, And so we have these conflicts, but here's how it shows up in classrooms, right? For me, it shows up, what I'm seeing is a lot of bullying, 
that these laws are flimsy laws, and we know that they're flimsy, they won't hold up if ever challenged, right? But what these laws have done is they have empowered people to now run up to the school and threaten the principal, right? They've empowered people to call their teacher and demand change to any curriculum that doesn't sit well with them, that doesn't support the narrative view of America that they want to champion for their children. Um, and so I really think that parents and caregivers are confused right now, specifically those parents and caregivers who are targeted specifically by people who want to keep status quo as it always has been. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of that. Teachers are scared. Um, and because they're scared, they're avoiding these things altogether, right? And so I'm so glad that you said, yes, we can continue to teach, um, you know, in powerful, affirming and developmentally appropriate ways. Yes, we can continue to be historically accurate. Yes, we can continue to support all students. Um, not just white students, not just wealthy students, not just straight students, not just boys, um, you know, and so I get really, really um, worried when I think about what I'm seeing, you know, because not everybody has these conversations, you know, and so I'm hoping that this can allow people to kind of have the kind of comfort because one of the things I'm seeing in the face of all this bullying, right, you know, you've got, you know, a few in communities who have been empowered by these laws to now threaten people. And because of all this bullying, people don't want the drama. You know, we're teachers, right? We're, we're relatively conflict and risk averse. So, so if there's going to be a parent who comes up to my room and threatens me, even though I know I'm doing the right thing, I'm just going to be a lot quieter about doing the right thing. Um, and, and that's exactly what they want, right? That, that we've been really loud about justice. We've been really loud about seeing every student. We've been really loud about access. We've been really loud um, about, you know, making sure that every kid finds a home in a classroom. And so all of these voices seek to quiet that. Bob, I, I want to segue in saying that, you know, for many educators, like, this work, I will say, even, you know, two years ago, this work towards a more socially just classroom to creating more inclusive spaces, to really understanding ourselves and each other, doing a lot of like identity work and, you know, historically responsive literacy within professional learning. It felt like a really joyful pursuit. It felt like, okay, this is hard, but we're in this together and I have my community support. So now it feels very different, right? Like, now people are are leaning towards like this it, for some folks it feels like this treacherous risk by doing things that we know are good for children by creating a community circle cre doing identity maps for example i know there are a lot of educators who are questioning like oh my god like am i going to get fired for doing this will i be like in arizona i see there's a fine for five thousand uh, dollars not necessarily for that activity but for things that the state of Arizona is defining as a CRT practice. Um, you know, here in New York City, uh, teachers get letters in their files. And, you know, although like we live in a, a geopolitically different landscape than folks in Arizona, we definitely have pockets like Cornelius was talking about of caregivers and parents who are essentially bullying schools, demanding that this marriage, like meritocracy still exists. And so I guess my question for you, Bob, is, uh, you know, how do how can professional learning experts like me and Cornelius respond? How do we advise school principals to support teachers in, in this pursuit that felt really great as as close as two years ago? That feels completely different within the political landscape we're in now. Yeah, well, this is 
this, this is a great question, Cass, um, and I want to think about it for a second. I mean, first of all, I just want to appreciate what both of you have said around the uh, the climate of, of fear and bullying and the impulse to stay quiet and perhaps as a reaction to some of the progress that we've made and the, the awakening that's happened uh, in the past year and a half or two around issues around race. Um, so it's, it's, uh, that, that was very, um, I want to underscore that because that really stuck with me. Um, and in terms of the response, I mean, I guess I have um, sort of a general, sort of some general thoughts and then some specific concrete thoughts. And maybe I'll just stick to the general for now. But um, one is just really, uh, you know, understanding that as as people committed to educators committed to social justice and and teaching about equity in in this country and and civics, frankly, because it's just so important. We know it's more important than ever for students to um, learn about the underpinnings of democracy and and certainly how race, uh, sex, and other issues of, of identity have impacted the country and our democracy. So it's so important, and I think it's important for us to, in general terms, to take the long view here and understand that that issues around uh, the curriculum and, and conflicts about certain topical matters, it's not new. You know, we all know that this has happened uh, every couple of years, every decade or so. There's another kind of um, cultural conflict around the curriculum. You know, in, in, in years past, we've, we've had um, strife around uh, bilingual education or ethnic studies. Uh, we've also had, uh, and I was uh, part of this movement or struggle in the late 90s and early 2000s around LGBTQ issues and sort of can we teach issues around LGBTQ identity or equity in public schools or, or should we keep that out? because it's somehow inappropriate. Um, and even further back, you know, uh, sort of discussions around sex ed, uh, is that appropriate for children to learn about sexuality or uh, even evolution, right? Like sort of, can, should we, should we uh, have a, uh, are we allowed to teach about evolution or should we somehow in certain states uh, talk more and stick more to religious notions of how the world was created? <laughs> so, you know, these issues, I, I, I just bring them up to say that this is, this is something that happens periodically in our country. So we need to understand that and, and take the long view that um, we need to persist and um, be sure that we hit our mark with the, co with the concepts and learnings that we want to deliver for children in schools and, um, and understand that, that we still can move forward with this education uh, and that this is no different from things that have happened in the past. Uh, we also want to protect ourselves in a way. And maybe I'll just start to get a little bit more specific, um, try not to talk too long here, but but I think we want to protect ourselves as educators and as, as professional development experts going into public schools. You know, you want to, we want to know in advance because the laws are on the books in some states. We want to know in advance, well, what are any issues that you may, the school may be feeling uncomfortable with around this education, whether I'm a teacher in the classroom or uh, whether I'm a professional development expert coming in to do a training for teachers. Um, try to, tr uh, with this new reality in certain states where the laws are in the books, try to figure out in advance whether um, there are any potential issues or concerns that the school is raising or the administrators are raising around uh, teachings around race or sex. And, um, and try to work through those in advance because the, the last thing we want to do 
or experiences to be pulled from the microphone uh, right before we get up there <laughs> or as we're starting to deliver a lesson or a unit on racism to our students to have the principal kind of yank us and pull us aside into the hallway and sort of have a big discussion uh, right then and there. So, so I would say one thing is to really focus on working through these issues in advance. Um, and it does take some understanding, which, uh, you know, we could certainly follow up from this uh, presentation and provide some professional development around learning a little bit what these laws and policies are actually saying, and then reconciling that against what the school district is saying, because they may not match up. The school may have a whole bigger set of concerns than what's actually in the laws. Um, and then reconciling those two things with what our own content is from our own body of expertise. And those things may be very different. And I think helping the school understand what we're about in our teaching uh, and, and what we're trying to present and, and sort of the learning outcomes from our trainings or our units, helping schools to understand the difference between what we're talking about and what their fears are, I think is a crucial sort of thing to work out prior to th those units or trainings actually happening. So that's one concrete thing I would really suggest. Um, and I don't know if, uh, if there are others and if you guys want to add on to that. Oh, that's so powerful, Bob. You know, it reminds me of what Cass and I say to each other and say to the teachers that we support all the time, you know, that when we think about the work of, you know, culturally sustaining practices or culturally responsive practices, you know, practices that center children, Cass and I always, you know, smile at each other and we say that we are radically pro-kid, right? You know, and we know that, you know, that we're talking to so many teachers out, out here who are listening alongside us. And, and what that means is it, it goes back to John Dewey and those notions of what a democratic education is, right? That it is our work to help children to create opportunities for themselves, right? That that in a democracy, the job of a public educator is to create opportunities for kids and to eventually teach kids to create opportunities for themselves. But in a democracy, we have a unique calling, right? That when kids learn to create opportunities for themselves, they must do so with respect to our environment and to the myriad communities of people that share our country, right? And so one of the things that I always remind educators is that anything that abridges or threatens opportunity for a child is in our way as American educators, right? And so when we think about what we teach, right, that one of the things that I know is that, that, that kids being in communities where they don't have access to adequate food is it's in the way of opportunity. So that's work that we teach kids to overcome, right? You know, or kids being in communities where women don't have access to powerful forms of employment, right? That's our work so that the next generation does have access, you know? And so whenever people come and they say, well, you're, you're talking to kids about women and employment and that's political, you can't do that. Well, like, well, these kids are in a community where women are underemployed, you know, two to one. And so, that is our work, you know, right, if we right. are educators in a democracy is teaching kids how to to expand opportunity in their communities. And so for our listeners out here, we just want to remind you that, yeah, that we get to remain steadfast. I love Bob's idea of being informed, but being informed doesn't mean I get informed and then I stopped. You know, being informed means I get informed and I remain steadfast to the community, to the, you know, to the opportunities available to the kids in the community. 
And one of the things that I would add, Bob, is recently I've been practicing a lot, you know, and so preparing for those moments when the principal wants to pull me into the hallway and ask me a question or preparing for those moments when when a parent has something to say that 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 these are certainties now in this political ecosystem. Right. I know that there will be parents with questions because this is confusing. I know that there will be principals who don't understand exactly 100 percent of everything that I'm doing. And so seeing those questions not as a threat, but seeing those questions as a real opportunity to engage in discourse that can make this better for all of our students is really exciting for me. Absolutely. Cass, do you want to get the last word on this, on what, what you would suggest <laughs> or, or questions, comments? Uh, sure. I mean, I think that, you know, the things that I'd like to share with our listeners, really, I'm, I know that a lot of educators are craving, well, okay, what are some concrete things that I can do to, to like build my path and moving forward from this conversation that we're having now? I know the CRT laws exist. I know I want to work towards a socially just space and include all of my kids in the conversation. I know that parents are confused right now. So what's next? Um, so the things that I'd like to talk about for just a moment here are, you know, specifically for educators or um, facilitators of professional learning. I'd like just to share like Cornelius and me, like how we how we move and proceed in spaces where kids and families are in front of us are in close proximity to the conversation. And, you know, the first thing I will say is that, um, you know, what we did 10, 15, 20 years ago, it's very similar to what we're doing now. Like a lot of what is happening now, there are just these like scary labels put on them by politicians, right? So I found like the best card I have to play is to share what I know and educate folks on issues and concepts that have been immensely hyperbolized by the news media are oftentimes documented incompletely. So first and foremost, um, you know, not just as an educator of children, but I've always found it my job is to educate. You know, my background, I, I worked as a special educator for many, many years. And a lot of the tension that I experienced in the school community was simply because parents and caregivers were misinformed and the, the level of transparency was not great. And so you increase your level of transparency. You're very explicit in what you're doing and why you're doing it, when it's going to happen. And you'll find that the tensions that you once experienced often decrease and you actually like build a relationship with the people who were question, questioning of your practice. The, the next thing, I have a little list and then I'll just throw Please, it over to yeah. you. <laughs> I'm all ears here. This is great. <laughs> the next thing I'll say, which is similar to what you were talking about, Bob, is, you know, preparation is key. I think that sometimes we educators get into a rut where we feel like we can execute like similar unit plans that we've done in the past so that we know like this, this read aloud, like to its core. And I will say that I still practice what I'm going to do. I still thoughtfully and intentionally create curriculum and facilitation plans for every community and group of people, whether it be kids or teachers that I work with. And I think, I think sometimes in our profession, we take it for granted that we've been doing this for a while and we know what we're doing. But I, I now know that I need to be able to cite like childhood development, for example, I do a lot of work with, uh, you know, social literacy and young learners. And oftentimes like there's this thing, well, these the kids are too innocent, like they can't have this conversation where it's actually like, well, you know, in childhood development, you know, when kids are like four to six years old, their brains are right to understand this information about who they are and who the peers who surround them are. And they're totally ready to have a conversation about cultural backgrounds and identity. We know that babies from like six months old recognize like skin color and they interpret humans according to their shades of skin. And so to give them language around that equips them 
for a more uh, understanding and connective experience in later years. And if we don't do that, we're just really putting, setting ourselves up for a, a dangerous political landscape and further exacerbating the divisiveness that exists now. You know, there's yeah. frameworks, right? When you're developing your curriculum, we do it with like thoughtfulness. So like Cornelius and our big Grant Wiggins fans, like when we do curricular design with teachers, we literally like document that stuff like very explicitly. So knowing your why and knowing your how and knowing your when are really, really essential in this landscape. Then finally, and I, I, wanna, I want Porn to talk about this a little bit too, because this is really um, one of his very special spots in work is thinking about the ecosystem of school in general. I think in the past, we teachers have been able to get away with like, we're gonna you know, read this read aloud with our group of kids and like, nobody's gonna say boo about it. But now we are faced with this political landscape where if we choose a text, even something like I Dissent, the picture book about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, parents and caregivers have been giving teachers pushback on reading a text yeah. like that, right? So I know that all the decisions I make have to be developed from a place of deep conviction. So that is whatever I'm doing, I have a very strong idea of why I'm doing it. And it's developed from a place of deep listening around my school community. So I'm taking what my kids are questioning about, I'm taking what I understand about who they are, and I'm making decisions about which books I'm gonna read in context to the standards I'm supposed to be teaching. And it's got to be grounded in a sound research base as much as possible. I am always telling school communities, I mean, really that stuff you learn in undergrad school when you're becoming like an educator about learning theory, like that's important. It's important to know the whys of your curricular decisions. And then, you know, like Quinn said before, the priority consideration is always the kids. Who are they? What do they know? And what do they need? Those are like my, like, that's my modus operandi when I'm in a school community. Um, Corinne has a very special way of navigating all of this, like really thinking about concrete steps too. So Corinne, do you want to add on to anything I talked about or give some more specifics? Well, you know, the word that, that Cass and I use all the time is love, you know, like, what does it mean to love kids? You know, that, that every teacher has come to this profession because they love kids. Um, and so as we have matured in the profession, I have really sought to quantify love. Like, what does love look like in first period? What does love look like when I'm standing at the door? What does love look like when I'm reading a story? And so for me, there are two aspects of love that factor into our conversation today, that, that part of loving kids is meeting them at their aspirations. You know, that when kids come to a classroom, like I, it's not just, I want to be an astronaut or I want to be a firefighter, but so many kids come to us. I want to live in a community where I'm safe. I want to live in a community where I have consistent food. I want to live in a community where women don't get taken advantage of. Right. And so I think about those aspirations and I think about what tools do I need to give you when you're seven? when those are your aspirations, right? And then how do those tools differ than the tools that I give you if you're 14 or 18, right? You know, and you know, one of the things that we talked about a lot this year during the pandemic was food stability. You know, that we were on Zoom with kids every morning. And so we saw it when they missed breakfast. We saw it when they didn't have lunch, right? And so to be on a Zoom alongside a kid when they didn't have lunch or breakfast and to know that intimately, then means that, okay, I've got to design the kind of teaching they can help this eight-year-old to access food if they don't have it. So I get to talk to kids about food ways and I get to talk to kids about where vegetables come from. And I get to talk to kids about food apartheid, right? And why is it in some neighborhoods that we have fresh vegetables and in other neighborhoods, we can only get access to processed foods, right? That, that if a kid is old enough to talk about how hungry they are, now they're old enough to talk about like food, 
right? You know, and so those are the things. So like when I think about love, I think about meeting kids at their aspiration. But then I also think about a powerful curriculum in school must also meet kids at their questions, right? And so if a kid is mature enough to come to school and ask a question, well, Mr. Minor, why didn't that woman get what she needed in the community? Or why is that man homeless? If they're old enough to ask the question, they're old enough to learn the answer, right? Um, and so talking to kids about unhoused communities or talking to kids about, you know, the, the, the legacy of patriarchy in this country, I don't have to use those words. But when kids ask, well, why is it that a lot of women in our community don't have jobs? I get to talk to them about, well, here's how the jobs are set up. And sometimes it's fair and sometimes it's not fair. Like we've all played on the playground. We know what fair looks like, right? And so I don't have to use legal terminology to talk to kids. I can summon their schema to talk to them about these things. And so I think um, moving forward for us, it must be about moving from a place of love, meeting kids specifically at their level of aspiration and meeting kids specifically at their questions. If we do those things, we'll never be wrong, you know, and we'll never be on the wrong side of the law. So... What does love look like? That's so amazing. Uh, I I think uh, you know it's it's uh, this has been really powerful. Um, you know, I want to sort of wrap up here and sort of get into you know we've been talking about what is CRT, uh, what's going on in our schools and communities right now, and how can we react to this and prepare for what's happening right now. And um, I wanted to just conclude by by saying, you know, of course. Um, and ask you both a, a, a final question around self-care and support uh, for, uh, for educators and trainers in this time, like, you know, sort of what we can do to uh, not only prepare, but to support ourselves and to really um, take care of ourselves because it is hard. And I, I've talked to both of you at length about this. It's, it's hard to persist sometimes. It's hard when you don't feel necessarily safe either yourselves or uh, in communities where, um, you know, there's a lot of foment around issues around race or sex or power right now. So, you know, one final question for each of you is just sort of how do, you, how do we grapple with that? How do we take care of ourselves? Uh, thank you, Bob. I think that's probably the most important conversation for all of this, any of this conversation to be sustainable, right? And, um, you know, with an asterisk note, I will say this is something that Cornelius and I are still working on developing in our own practice, like this idea of self-care. I think people who are in our role are really good at caring for others. But when it comes to taking a step back and thinking about your own needs, it's it's a challenge. So I will say like community is essential. Um, nobody can do this work alone. And I think for people who are working in schools, like in a similar role that me and Cornelius have doing a lot of professional learning and uh, partnering, the first question I always have with people who are leading these movements is, you know, do you, who's your partner or like who's in your who's in your circle that you're having conversations with? I do think at this point to partner with somebody and not, uh, you know, not help them build a circle of community that's centered in love and care. It's, it's irresponsible because this is, um, you know, for many people, it's very consuming. The other thing I'll say just about care and and just like longevity in this work, I think that commitment piece is so essential. This might sound silly to people, but I know it's hard and it's hard to imagine it moving forward or to imagine yourself having a courageous conversation with an angry parent. But I do a lot of like self-visualization work. So I, I often 
please don't laugh, but I imagine myself as like Wonder Woman. There's this scene in the first Wonder Woman where she's on like the Western front in Europe and she has her arms X and she's battling all of those bullets off. And that's sometimes like when I go into a school community and I know it's going to be hard when I'm working, partnering with a teacher and I know it's going to be hard. I just like lock in. I love them up. And I just, with that deep conviction, I was like, we're going to do this and it's going to be great for the kids. And nine times out of 10, the kids are like, this is the best lesson I've ever had. And they go home and tell their parents and their parents, even if they get pushback, are like, wow, my kid had a great day at school. And so I know maybe that's not essentially self-care, but in a way it kind of like, uh, I don't know, coincides with the experience of like being in community within, in deep care and love with partners in your work. And then also loving yourself and believing in yourself enough that you can do this and having a strategy in your mind that is going to like help you persevere in those hardest moments. It's so essential. Um, so, so that's what, that's what gets me yeah, through. Yeah. I love it. Absolutely. <laughs> Cornelius, and now you get, you get the last word here yeah. on, on, on loving yourself. How do you love yourself? Yeah. You know, I, I thought everything Cass says, you know, but one of the things that I'm learning, you know, from, from the, from the great Simone Biles in this moment, you know, something that we have learned from generations of Black women before her, and I keep repeating to myself, but like, no is a complete sentence that we don't have to do all the things as educators, right? That that we do the things that, that impact students. Um, we do the things that help to sustain them in their communities. Um, but there are these other things that we've been drawn into. And so in this political ecosystem, people want to draw us into debates or they want to draw us into arguments or they want to draw us into provide me with all the evidence that you have or provide me with all the lesson plans that you have. Um, and so I have been remembering and reminding myself and the people that I love that no is a complete sentence, that I owe these people anything. I owe these people nothing. I owe my students everything, but I owe these people nothing, right? That, and you know, and that's part of the game, right? That 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 one of the, the roles of political detractors is to keep you busy from doing your actual work, mm-hmm. right? That, you know, the great Toni Morrison talked about that is the function of racism, right? That racism keeps you busy doing other people's stuff so that you can't get to the stuff that matters in your community. Um, and so I am committed to the stuff that matters to my community. And I am okay with saying no to other people's stuff. Amazing. Amazing. So we're going to leave it there. And, and uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation with both both you, Cass, and you, Cornelius, that I think, I, I hope that we can, we've given the, the listeners some, some fodder here to, to say no when they need to for self-care, as you said, Cornelius, and also to say yes, you know, when you want to persist, when you want to, and, and uh, to, to learn how to get through this sort of uh, policy, uh, these policy hurdles and questions that we're having right now, that you can get the information and you can uh, and gain the knowledge of what actually do these laws say, and what am I? What is my intent and my content, and how can I advocate for myself and to make sure that my content is uh, both doing, you know, acting with love toward the students um, and also. Uh, you know, complying with these laws and understanding that, that by and large, um, there are ways for creative and smart educators to comply with laws, but also to uh, deliver the content that they need, really, uh, that they need to deliver. So I love this conversation. I'm so happy to be with both of you. And I hope 
that everyone out there got something out of it. Thank you so much, Bob. This was a, yeah. a dream for Cornelius and me to spend this yeah. afternoon talking to you. And what a great opportunity for us to connect with so many folks who are listening. And um, I know that this is going to be, uh, especially that first part, Bob, where you're referencing these laws, it's going to be such a great resource for us to share with so many folks we know who have um, some of the questions that we addressed together today. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you both. Our thanks to Bob Cornelius and Cass for their time today. You can find Bob on Twitter at Bob double underscore Kim, Cornelius at Mr. Minor, and Cass at Ms. Cass One. If you would like to see more content from the Heinemann Forward Ed series, check out blog.heinemann.com or visit the Heinemann Publishing YouTube channel or Facebook page. The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. It is produced and edited by Steph George. Sound mixing by Steph George. Our creative producer is Lauren Audette. And our executive producer is me, Brett Whitmarsh. To learn more about the Heinemann Podcast, visit blog.heinemann.com. Thanks for listening.